So here we are again on a lovely Shabbat weekend with President Trump coming into town and still people war against him. This episode of By Faith, the unscripted, unedited podcast with Lisa Noel Babbage may be a bit of a roller coaster, a mood roller coaster, you might say, because I have no idea where this conversation is going to go. First, I just want to start off with kudos to President Trump for signing the Born Alive Executive Order. This is something that should have been put in place immediately following Roe versus Wade decision. But obviously, no one had a concept in their mind that a child who was born alive after a botch abortion would then be murdered in cold blood. Yet that's what we have come to in this country. And thanks to the executive order that President Trump just signed, any child who was born alive with a beating heart after a botched abortion must be given medical care. I don't know where you stand on the life issue, but if you watch an abortion happening and those videos are available on the internet, you will see without a shadow of a doubt that the children who are being killed in the womb through abortion are actually people, not just a clump of cells. Born alive means that child has passed the threshold not only of pain, but of life because modern technology gives us an opportunity to save children in the wombs as early as 20 weeks, the very point of the pain threshold in the womb. Yet these children are being discarded as medical waste. Thank you, President Trump, for signing this executive order. But folks, please know, if President Trump is not reelected, that executive order will be rescinded. Part of the uproar over Ruth Bader Ginsburg is the fact that her replacement on the bench will change the trajectory of our Supreme Court for decades, at minimum. This is a lifetime appointment. Every president who has the opportunity to appoint a Supreme Court justice dramatically impacts the narrative of our legal system for years to come. People on both sides of the aisle know this, and that's why it is so such a coveted thing. Ruth Bader Ginsburg, um, during Obama's administration, admitted, rightly so, that it is the president's duty to replace justices. When President Trump entered office in 2016, there were over 100 vacant seats on various benches across our nation. Two of those seats received a lot of acclaim because they were for our Supreme Court. When Justice Anton Scalia died, and that was the most famous one, and it started this this fury, if you will, about our Supreme Court becoming too conservative. Now, no one would flat out say that, but that's basically the bottom line of what we were dealing with. I remember back in the perhaps late 80s, early 90s, when we had one swing justice on that court, we had four conservatives and four liberals. That one swing justice started siding with liberals well into his tenure. And I I remember when, um, I believe it was Justice Sandra Day O'Connor retired, there was a shift in that bench, and it has continued up until President Trump's presidency. With this third 
appointment, which is record-breaking, never happened before. President Trump honestly has solidified his reputation as a champion for conservative policies, as a champion for life, as a champion for everything our Constitution stands for, by putting constitutionalists back on the bench. Those who are not necessarily serving their own agenda, while there are, they're really serving the agenda of our nation because it, it outlines what has already been established in our Constitution. People are suggesting that President Trump should not appoint a Supreme Court justice because there are written, unwritten laws, unspoken laws against the fact that we are less than 50 days from an election and the people should have heard their say. What these propagandized uh, media plots fail to admit is that the people already had their say. They had their say in 2016 when President Trump won the election. They have had their say for the last four years by keeping the man in office, despite numerous attempts to impeach him, to discredit him, and to destroy the foundation of our country. So the people have spoken, and him appointing a Supreme Court justice within the last 50 days of his first term is by law his duty. Why would he not? Well, many people are trying to play the card that um, establishment Republicans back in Obama's last several months of his second term, establishment Republicans came out publicly stating that Obama should let the people speak and save that Supreme Court nomination for the next um, president. Now, of course, Obama assumed that Hillary Clinton would be our next president, so he relented. His goal in office was to survive as the first black president. The amount of pressure put on that family, whether you support them or not, you must admit that the amount of pressure put on that family was immense. And a reputation, a, um, a, a poster child existence had to come across for those eight years in order to not set back African Americans in the political arena, in order to not set back uh, race relations in this country. That was the, the mindset and the MO, if you will, as to how that Team Obama was being run. I mean, to be honest with you, if you've ever seen the documentary, Obama's campaign was run by five white liberals who wanted to make history, and they did. They put a black man in office. But what rules did they bend to get there? And what rules were bent by Obama and his team while in office to make sure that there were, A, no wars during his administration, B, to make sure that there were no terrorist attacks during his administration, to do all of these things that would put him in line for the Nobel Peace Prize. That was their goal. The goal of these white liberals and many white liberals in the world is to show that a black person can be equal. However, the way that they go about it, I find offensive as a black person. I find it uh, corrupt, to say the least. Now, I don't think the right, the conservative gatekeepers, the rhinos, which are Republicans in name only, the, the several good old boys don't do me any justice either. And so we are caught between a rock and a hard place with regards to the perception of equality. Because I know, just like every Bible believer, that my equality does not come from my government, but from my God. But second of all, 
in this particular nation, I am blessed to say that our governing documents do follow God's law, and they do give us the certain inalienable rights by our Creator. Acknowledging that in our founding documents submits to the authority of the one true God. Why do I need government to make me equal? What I need is government to do the job of government. And we have lost sight of that in this country. Right now, we have a nation of people who have no idea what the true role of government is and what they are responding to is propaganda and emotional outcries to obvious injustice. Instead of being solution-oriented, we want to mask over and band-aid all of the wrongs with more wrong because it is a handicapping, it is a uh, extermination narrative that seeks to bring about equality. Well, you can't bring about equality by extermination in the womb. You can't bring about equality by extermination through the prison system. And you can't bring about equality through the band-aiding of the actual problem. You must dig deep, and that's something that has not happened. And and I, I think it's humorous to a certain extent that we hear a lot of things about the deep state But the fact is, we're not really digging deep in our nation on what the real problem is, and that is godlessness. At its source, our nation has stepped away from God when we took prayer out of schools, when we took the Ten Commandments out of um, public buildings, when we started making excuses for everything and taking away personal accountability, when we allowed gatekeepers like Joe Biden and many others on both sides of the aisle He's just the one that's coming to me right now. But we, we, we allow these gatekeepers to stay in office. When we stop having literate citizenship, we remove those classes from our education system. And in fact, as a teacher, I am feel em, empowered and emboldened to say that our education system has failed our kids. But it's more than that. Moms and dads, churches, civic organizations, and those who are elected have failed our kids as well, because now we have an entire generation of people who only respond through knee-jerk reactions. They have been spoiled by uh, the auspices of the West and technology, who has made everything easy for them, that they have become illiterate leeches. And I say that in the most respectful sense, because we have programmed them to be that way. And there should be no surprise when we have vast numbers of people who are willing to march in the streets and carry a torch for what they see as wrong and legitimately may be wrong in every sense of the word, but they don't have anything to back it up with regard to action. It's, it's a verbalization of problems without a thought process toward solutions. So it honestly gets us nowhere. It just keeps us in this cycle of conflict. And unfortunately, race and ethnicity, which, you know, there's one human race, but I use that word just for the simplicity of it. But ethnicity and skin tone, our cultural biases are the easiest things that our enemy, and when I say that, I do mean Satan, easiest thing for our enemy to use to to divide us out if if a house is divided it will fall this is 
common sense. This is mathematics. However, people are not recognizing that the house that is America is made up of different pieces that can be categorized by ethnicity, uh, geography, uh, gender. When you blur all those lines, when you blur the lines that make us uniquely created in God's image, you, you can exploit the division that will naturally occur when, when that is done. And, and this is a program, if you will, that has been instituted since day one on earth. In the Garden of Eden, Adam turned to his wife and in, in the face of a loving God said, it was the woman you gave me. So he pointed his finger at God in essence and said, it's her fault and you gave her to me. So I'm not taking a personal accountability for my part in this, which his was the linchpin, his part of, of not standing up to the ploys and not correcting his wife for what she was not even there to witness. He was the one who kind of everything hedged on, and yet he was the very same one that turned to God and shook his finger and said, it was the woman you gave me. So that division of not taking personal responsibility for pointing out wrongs but not be, being solution-focused is at the crux of the narrative that we find ourselves in now. So Ruth Bader Ginsburg, now that her official death has been declared, and yes, I'm one of those people that believe she died before this particular month of September 2020. I believe her her death announcement was held up for political reasons, and I find that to be the most disgusting thing I've ever heard of. But uh, when we consider we live in a country that's willing to kill a baby at nine months in the womb on the very day of their birth as a woman goes into labor, why would we assume for one second that a political ploy to keep Ruth Bader Ginsburg's death announcement on ice and delay it till this very moment. Why would we think that that is a conspiracy or insane or um, unbelievable? We see children being killed the very day they are born. In a society that has allowed that to the tune of 60 million will definitely delay a death announcement of a senior citizen for political gain. And that is something that we should be able to swallow, not choke on, but take it as food for the fight that's ahead. Because I guarantee you, ladies and gentlemen, with this born alive executive order that President Trump has just signed, the fury of hell is going to come against him in a way that we haven't even seen. I pondered with a friend um, what my role in all of this is. I know I have received a word from God regarding... Um, my role, which I'm not going to share now and, and have only shared with close family and friends. But the point of it is, is that I know that God's wrath concerning the loss of innocent life in this nation and in this world is a motivating factor for the events that are to unfold. Let me just say it. I don't want to be cryptic, but let me just say it in a way 
um, as plainly as I can. There are many things that God will tolerate. If you look in the Word of God and you look at it with a triangulated lens, meaning you don't just take it for word value, but you actually meditate it. You, you seek God in your quiet time to have Him illuminate His written Word. You take into context everything that took place at the time those words were written, and you truly seek after Him with your whole heart. He will open your eyes to the fact that He is a very patient person because God is love and love means patience. If we didn't, and you can apply it to your own family, if you didn't love your husband, you you would not be patient with him. As a matter of fact, you would have divorced him already for his irritations. If you didn't love your children, you would have, you know, discarded them because the teenage years are very challenging for most parents. And if we didn't love our children, Trust me, there would be dead teenagers everywhere. So love is what gives us our patience. It is not our own tolerance or our no, our own, you know, uh, moral aptitude. It's not even our own ability to deal with stress. It is the fact that in some way there must be an element of love. God's love and his patience for us allows grace and mercy to abound when we are debased. It allows us to live another day, try to right some wrongs, um, do better. You know, there's there's a phrase that floats around, uh, I want to say black communities, but it may just float around Democrat communities, which is when you know better, you do better. And, you know, that's uh, that's great for a cliche. But the truth of the matter is people know better and they choose not to do better every single day of the year collectively because of our own interests and our complacency and our laziness and honestly, our greed. So yeah, when we know better, we don't automatically do better because there's varying levels to what the word knowing means. Um, As a teacher, and most teachers will be able to attest to this, someone can know something for a quiz or they can know something in a moment in time, but until they're able to teach it, they don't really know it. And so when you take all those factors in consideration, you can see why God's grace and mercy are are long-suffering and why he is extremely patient with his people. And I don't mean save people, I mean all people, because all people were created in the image and likeness of God, whether they choose God or not. Um, So, you know, Hitler was created in God's image, just like I was created in God's image. Hitler, unfortunately, did not choose God. And, you know, and Hitler has to face the consequence for his choices, as we all do. And of course, I'm borrowing that that uh, that particular example from my pastor. But the point of it is, is that God's love is long-suffering for us, and he will allow us to make mistakes, even a 60 million beating heart mistake through abortion. He has allowed this country to make that mistake. He has not burned our country up. And he has allowed the natural effect of devaluing the family, the natural effect of having blood on our hands, the natural effect of the consequence of a spirit of murder running rampant in our country. That's where we are right now. You know, there's no way a police officer would murder a man in cold blood had we not raised that police officer in the culture of death. This is not about the Second Amendment. I am a gun owner. 
but this is about the mindset behind people who act out violently, regardless of the type of quote unquote weapon they use. You know, we we do a lot in this country to say it is the tool that's used that is the bad thing. It's the gun. It's the um, MAGA hat. It's the whatever. It is the person behind that and the motive of their hearts that is the problem. A gun cannot fire itself, you know, and, and people can be killed with baseball bats pretty much just as easily. I, I remember, you know, growing up in the ghetto, the number one weapon that these single moms had to protect themselves and their children was a baseball pat, a bat. The second weapon of choice was a lead pipe. Guns did not even come into the conversation. The only people that had the guns were the criminals. And criminals are the only ones who do not follow gun laws. So this whole uh, debate back and forth about the number of guns in this um, country, I find to be a little fanciful. And that's great for countries like Sweden and, you know, certain parts of Australia or what have you that have been able to do away with their guns and their crime drop. That's great. But it's not because they did away with their guns. It's because they did away with the culture of death. We have not done away with the culture of death in this nation. If we think about our history here, death to the Native Americans, the first generation, was prevalent. Death through the practice of slavery, prevalent. Death through Jim Crow and segregation, prevalent. After that, the next big murderous spirit that we allowed in this country was abortion. And honestly, to a certain extent, homosexuality followed that up because there's no procreation with homosexuality, with that practice, just in the very simplest of terms. I'm not um, bashing homosexuals nor condoning them. I'm just stating a a mathematical fact, a scientific fact, that when you uh, are engaging in homosexual behavior, you are not procreating. And any species that does not procreate is destroying itself. So you think about these various phases of murder that have been um, the order of the day in this country. And there's no wonder why a man who's charged with protecting and serving would kill another man in cold blood in front of an audience. This is very similar to the Roman Empire. And the fact that they would feed people, Christians, uh, in various groups, to the lions in front of a crowd and they would cheer. That is the murderous spirit that uh, made Rome implode. And you find that in the Babylonian uh, Empire. You find that in uh, many empires throughout Africa over the, over the uh, centuries, if you will. And it's that murderous spirit that becomes the culture's prevailing force that causes a nation to fall. We're here, folks. We're here. 2020 is really the new 2012. You know, everyone was afraid about Y2K and they were afraid afraid about 2012 because of the Mayan calendar. Well, 2020 is that that point in time, in my opinion. And it's the thing that is, uh, or it's the season, I should say, where... the rubber meets the road and it's time for us to recognize the true 
issue behind the conversations that are, are being had and need to be had. Yes, there are injustices in the world. And yes, some of those injustices are based on how a person looks, based on how a person acts, and based on the mindset of the individual. Yes, all of those things come into play. They always have. It's not just because technology can film a murder now. It's because the murderous spirit that we have allowed to be rampant in this country for years has reached a boiling point or a tipping point. I truly believe that God's wrath regarding abortion has permeated every area of a society. And people will never make that leap until it's in the rearview mirror. The mental jump to say, hey, what goes around comes around. You got a lot of people talking about karma. You got a lot of people saying, you know, good vibes. That has been a trend for probably a, a decade and mounting. However, they're not recognizing that when we have slain 60 million babies, we don't have any good vibes. America's not putting out good vibes like they used to. America was 97% responsible for preaching the gospel, but it has become a a hypocritical, heretical gospel that we have preached because on the one hand, we are saying God is love and you're created in the image of God and God is hope and he ha- his plans for you are, are higher. You know, all of these things which are absolutely true. But on the other hand, we say, oh, life is too hard. It would be better for you to be dead and just go ahead and take your life. Take the life of your baby Um you can start over. Choice. You can't have your cake and eat it too. And I believe that we're coming to a, a tipping point here. And I believe in this high holy day season, right now we're in that 10 days leading to atonement. I believe that we're going to see continual shifts, whether it be uh, physical storms through nature or we see political storms through as a result of this latest executive order that the president has signed. And has, as we get to a, a, a fever pitch for our election in November, we, we are right now in a season, and I believe it started October, I mean, not October, but September um, 19th, around that time, going up to October 2nd when we are in the biblical high holy days, shifts always happen over that time. You can look back at Israel's history. You can look back at the time clock, which is the nation of Israel and the Jewish people. And you will see that there have always been major shifts within that season. And these are the fall feast seasons. Well, it happens to be coinciding with one of the biggest elections that uh, America has ever seen. And I do have friends overseas, and I I know and hear that um, the impact of what this country is going through does reach all corners of the earth. And for those who haven't traveled or perhaps haven't had friendships and experiences outside of their own little town, you may not recognize the importance of your vote this November But that's how big it is. This is reaching around the world. And we do have to stand up for uh, the godly principles, A, if you're a believer, and B, if you're not, you should at least stand up for our Constitution. And, uh, you know, sorry for you if you're not a believer, because our Constitution does follow the Bible. So there's a lot of people, obviously, that would like to see that living document 
uh, changed. And one of the primary ways that that happens is through the court system. And uh, the Supreme Court, obviously, is most pivotal in that conversation. Now, believe it or not, there is a narrative out there to change the number of Supreme Court justices. I have a banner on one of my Facebook pages that says, keep nine. We currently have nine Supreme Court justices, and I wish I could say I knew the background as to how that came to be. Um, However, somewhere in our founding, there was an indication that 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 number is acceptable. So a smaller number, an odd number, obviously, um, was the target. And obviously, I'm going to have to look into that because I'm talking about it. But there's some uh, movement out there that wants to see that number jump to, I believe it is 12. Now, on the surface, if you decide not to dig deep, um, you can see why that might make sense. We have 12-member juries. We have 12 members on lower courts. Um, I believe it is our state Supreme Court uh, here in, in Georgia. Uh, I believe they have more members than nine. You know, I don't know. I don't know for sure right now, but I'm going by memory. Bottom line is 12 is a number that we have affiliated with the law and it's still not a large number. Um, so why would we fight this whole idea of keeping nine Supreme Court justices? It's the motive behind it. Everything that we do in life, motive must be taken into consideration. In a court of law, for example, when you are charged with a crime, motive, motive is established to um, make the crime valid, not so much whether the crime occurred or not, but to pin it on you. Motive is a... Um, something that is gone after in order to validate your guilt or innocence. And so that's something that lawyers and juries look for. They look for motive. Well, guess who looked for it before them? God did. He looks at our heart. That is biblical. I don't have the scripture reference, but it's a perfect time for you to go look it up. And know for sure that God is looking at, at what we do and why we do what we do. And honestly, he gives us grace and mercy. When we make decisions that are outside of his will, but our motive was to please him, and we literally have, uh, and, and he will be the judge of this, whether or not we literally tried to do the right thing and just fell short. I remember as a kid I, getting in trouble and saying to my mother, that's not what I meant. What I meant was this, and here's where I came up. I literally outlining why I did what I did and being punished for it. And I thought, but it wasn't like my intent. I said, my motive was not to do the wrong thing. My motive was to do the right thing. And here's why I thought this was the right thing. And and you can see, you could see the way I would argue it that um, there might not have been a justification for my action, but at least people could understand the motive as to why I made a mistake and why I went astray, because I'm looking at it through the mind of a child, and I didn't quite have all the information. Well, God looks at us that very same way. He recognizes that because of the, the sin environment that we dwell in, the residues that are on us from our past decisions and those things that have been decided about us all come into you know, this gross amalgamation of misdeeds and misgivings on our part. And God sees that. So that's why he looks at the heart and not necessarily the outcome of what we did to determine 
quote unquote, guilt or innocence. And that has carried over into our legal system. However, when we cloud the issue with political motive, with um, other motives that are self-serving, and we try to use the same narrative or argument to justify it, we honestly do ourselves a disservice. The problem with trying to go to 12 Supreme Court justices is that those who have suggested this outcome have done so with the intention of filling that court with liberal Supreme Court justices that will overshadow the, the two and now three appointments that President Trump will make. The thing is, if President Trump is reelected in November, no one will be talking about uh, raising the limit on the Supreme Court to 12 justices because no one wants a conservative. And when I say no one, I mean the people who are pushing this narrative. They don't want three more conservative justices. What they want is three more liberal justices, which is why this whole idea to change the number of justices only comes up when they believe they have a fighting chance to put a liberal in the White House I'm honestly surprised that more people did not push for this in Obama's administration, and perhaps they did. But there were a lot of factors in keeping that president afloat with regard to the reputation and the flawless reputation that they were trying to put out there. Truth is, there's a new list of... um, visitors, tourists, if you will, to Epstein's Island. It was recently released and I received a, a copy from a friend. We know that this after, this whole process, this whole um, way that lists are being released for from Jeffrey Epstein's sex island will not end anytime soon. And I, and I don't say that to be prophetic because it could end in the court of public opinion. But what I'm getting at is the fact that this man, this monster, if you will, um, committed acts over decades. Therefore, the lists are extensive. There's always going to be a new list coming out. It's just whether or not we bother to deal with it. And that's one thing that President Trump's administration has done under cover and under cloak um, you know, I, I think a lot of people would say I'm I'm a conspiracist to to assume that President Trump has anything to do with the indictments that are coming against the pedophile ring in Hollywood and the pedophile ring among the elite. But I do believe that God is using people close to Trump and Trump himself and and others, obviously, to bring this to a head. Because if we're not murdering kids in the womb, we're trafficking them. I don't care what anyone and their mother says about sex trafficking. If you deny its existence at the highest levels of our country, you are a fool and you are naive. That doesn't make you a bad person and it doesn't make you stupid, but it does make you ignorant to a practice that has been happening in this country. And we don't know the scale of it because it is undercover. But if you if you just consider for one second what was revealed through the Wayfair company, um, I'm not saying this because I'm not one of these people, even though 
you know, in all intents and purposes, I could be counted in the conspiracy theory group. If we're just looking at a mathematical formula or definition, yeah, sure, I'll give you that. But I never publicly talk on things that I have not firsthand witnessed. I don't talk about Ruth Bader Ginsburg's death announcement being um, advertised or, or, or announced, I should say, long after her death, unless I have firsthand experience or knowledge that her death was actually announced a year prior and that they've been keeping her on ice. I don't talk about that kind of stuff publicly unless I have a firsthand um, experience with it. I'm not talking about Wayfair publicly unless I have a firsthand experience. And their website definitely smacked of an undercover child trafficking ring, sex trafficking ring at the very highest levels of Hollywood and people with power in this country. I wouldn't be saying that if I had not seen it with my own eyes. Now, I would say it to friends and families, but I mean, I wouldn't say it publicly unless I had seen it, and I've seen it. I've also been in in plenty because I used to travel extensively as a young person and traveled on the cheap. I've seen, you know, the the kidnappings. I've seen the kids working in in sex trafficking throughout South America and Mexico. I've seen this with my own eyes. I wouldn't just say it, even if I had a hunch. I would not just say it unless I had seen it with my own eyes. And so what we have with this whole Epstein Island situation is we have, it makes me emotional, honestly, we have witness upon witness upon witness of persons. I don't want to just say women because uh, men are affected by sex trafficking. Persons who whose lives have been counted as nil, who have been discarded by society, who, who come from quote-unquote broken homes. This is a broken society that does not seek after God. And these people have been victimized and targeted by those with wealth for years. And the names on this list, I got to tell you guys, um, I know how bad it is, but when I'm face to face with a list of names, I have to admit how bad it is. Again, different levels of knowing and some of America's most most beloved people are on these lists. And I know that many people will say, well, Donald Trump is on that list. I don't know that he's on a list. I do know that he knew um, Epstein. I know that he knew Ghislaine Maxwell. Anybody in power uh, knows the other people in power. I just, I just kind of lean to common sense on this. I kind of lean to the fact that this is, a, and I don't mean this disrespectful. I'm just, I'm just being very transparent because this is unscripted and unedited. And if you were sitting in my living room, I would say the same thing to you. And so I'm going to say it here. I believe a man like uh, Donald J. Trump, who has had wealth, discretionary wealth, he could buy anybody he wants to. But I am convinced by the numerous marriages and numerous girlfriends that he has, that he has a particular type he leans to. Anyone who doesn't believe that, that's fine. I'm just saying, look at his kids. Look at his ex-wives. 
Look at his current wife. He has a type and he hasn't had any problem getting women. And honestly, because of the, I don't know if I want to say history, but because of the pattern of marrying and divorcing these women, I believe it is a, I believe it is evidence. It's circumstantial, obviously, but it is evidence to the fact that this is not a man who likely seeks after children for sexual pleasure. He doesn't have to. And I would say at this age in his life, obviously that's not a, that wouldn't be a concern either way. He's married to a beautiful woman who fits the role he needs her to fit. He's fine. Like men don't go after, and when I say men, I mean, I mean humans. Humans don't go after that which is uh, salacious or fetitiveness or they don't go after the deviancy in their lives when they're satisfied with what they have. You get what I'm saying? It's like, I don't need to debase myself by eating spam when I have filet mignon. President Trump has filet mignon. He doesn't need to have sex with a child. Now, I'm not trying to just like be one of these blindless Barbie dolls who screams Trump's name and acts as if he's not a human being. I'm not that person. But what I'm trying to say is I I really look at, you know, all the evidence that we have in in these cases that are still unfolding and largely shrouded and may never come to light this side of heaven. But, you know, common sense has to come into play here. You can, you can take people who are not famous. Take five people you know. Out of those five people, you know which ones are the sexual deviants. Like, you don't have to have the evidence. But there are other circumstantial things that, that back up that character trait in a person. You can put five people in the room. You don't have to guess which one has a, a sugar addiction because they're fat. There's a sign that shows you there's something going on, you know? And I I know this sounds horrible, but I mean, just hear my heart. I'm just trying to say, like, scientifically, if you look at, uh, I shouldn't say scientifically, but logically, if you look at characteristics surrounding a person, it does give you insight into their motive and their practices. You may not know how they do it, but you you can hypothesize that they do it because of A, B, C, D. Because of the, you know, when you, when you look at someone from a distance, just by their walk, the way they dress and the way they carry themselves, you can hypothesize things about them that are based in truth. Every, um, I can't even think of the word I'm trying to say right now, but stereotype, every stereotype is rooted in truth. Yes, it's a stereotype because it is blanketly applied to an entire group of people who, who match certain characteristics. But the bottom line is, it wouldn't be a stereotype if it had not been repetitively true. You know, you have a lot of, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk racial stereotypes because I'm not afraid of offending someone. You're either listening to this because you know me or you just happen to stumble upon it and you're bored. So stick with me if that's the case. And if you know me, you know where I'm coming from. But uh, my dad's white, my mom's black. Every uh, body assumed growing up, that if I was, you know, black people assumed that I acted white. 
because they knew I was biracial. They could look at me and tell. They didn't ask me. They just knew because it was common sense and there was enough circumstantial evidence and contextual evidence to make that leap of faith and judgment. And nine times out of 10, they would have been right. Nine times out of 10, people who look like me are multiracial because it is a mathematical certainty that people don't come out looking like me without having both black and white ancestry somewhere down the line. It may not be their their birth parents, but it may be their grandparents, but that's the way DNA works. If it's within a certain number of generations, it's going to show up. So most people who look like me, especially of my age, that is not like a uh, saying that I would be biracial is not a, a far out leap of faith. It's pretty much, yeah, of course, duh. Look at her. Look at the evidence, right? Well, the same thing can, can be said for other stereotypes. So I want to use myself to kind of just say, hey, I'm not, I'm not uh, slandering people when I talk about these stereotypes. I'm just trying to examine the fact that there is a context for the stereotype and that it is rooted in a truth and that common sense, the naked eye of observation will allow you to see it. So when you have a person who is six foot six, with a size 16 shoe, you can guess that they can play basketball, right? They may not even be coordinated, but they have the height advantage and the physical structure to be an athlete. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure that out. These, these are common sense things. And one of the stereotypes that uh, comes out a lot is that Asians perform well academically. You know, or that some kid wearing, it used to be like some, any kid wearing glasses. Well, you must be smart. You got glasses. I remember when I was a kid, I didn't need glasses and I used to wear fake glasses because I thought it made me look smarter. And, you know, how silly that is, but that's because there was a true stereotype that people who wore glasses were smarter. And because I was black, in many schools that I went to, there was a stereotype that I wasn't smart. And so to try to prove my smartness, I wore fake glasses because the bottom line is people took one look at me, a poor black girl who had the unfortunate um, luck to be biracial. This was honestly the, uh, uh, the uh, observation that many teachers had about me growing up because, you know, unfortunately I moved all the time. So I've been to many, many different schools in many different communities. And the resounding um, observation that teachers had with here was this unfortunate mixed girl who was poor. There's no way she can be smart. And I was constantly having to prove or feeling like I had to prove my intelligence or worth to educators who were charged with developing my intelligence, but instead automatically put me in a corner because they thought I was a problem child because my unfortunate circumstance would lead me to be behind the other boys and girls. And, and I observed this behavior as a young person by fourth grade exactly is when I came to this revelation. And I thought wearing fake glasses might help. Now, that was a, a 
a fool's errand, a, a child's way of looking at it. But the bottom line is we use our ear gates, our eye gates, and our past experiences to make decisions every single day. We observe things that are happening. We use our quote unquote common sense and all the background knowledge that we have gained in order to make suppositions and assumptions and decisions. And if we would apply that same logic and pattern to something as heinous as child trafficking, we would not be in denial about the fact that people with wealth and opportunity do participate in these things. Obviously, I don't mean all of them, but the deviants with wealth and opportunity will participate in things like child trafficking. And it has reached the highest level of, um, you know, people in this country. The problem is we don't want to apply that same logic, the same logic that we use for everyday life of looking at context, using our ear gates and eye gates to assess a situation, making an assumption or a presupposition about the facts in that, and then making a decision based on the information we have at the time. We do that every single day, but we don't want to apply that same logic or pattern when we're talking about the the gross things in society because we don't want to deal with it. It's, you know, it's painful. It's hard. It's, it's disgusting. It turns your stomach. It's, it's this, that, the other. Maybe it makes us feel guilty because we have those tendencies, but God will, God will hold us accountable for those decisions, guys. You can't turn your blind eye. It's the same thing as, as moms who allow their children to be molested and raped in their home, but they don't want to deal with it because it's just too much to deal with. And I don't, I didn't want to think that he would do that. Or I didn't want to think that she would do that. And yet a child is being abused right under your care. God will hold you responsible for that decision because the motive is you didn't want to think. The motive is I couldn't deal. So I'm bailing on that. That motive, I don't want to say leads to your guilt, but it is definitely tied to your outcome. And I feel like that's a whole sermon right there. Your motive may not be indicative of your guilt, but it is definitely tied to your outcome, especially in the eyes of God. Because if you turn your back on something because it's hard and you allow another person to stumble and fall, maybe be abused, maybe even be killed because you just didn't have the stomach for it, that's no excuse. And Americans, especially Americans from the South or in the South, You got no excuse for what you know to be the truth. You got no excuse to continue to self-medicate, which a lot of us are, through fried chicken, alcohol, and drugs. And we are turning our backs on some of the most vulnerable in this country because we're not standing up for what we know is right. Now, yeah, you can stand up at the ballot box. You can stand up in your family or friend group. But we have too many people who actually have opportunity to stand up to a larger audience and they're failing to do so. So I'm really thankful that right now a lot of people are jumping on President Trump's bandwagon with regard to life because this is an issue that I feel conviction that the Lord will make a judgment on in my lifetime and I do believe it will be soon. So I'm I'm happy to see more people jump on the ark before that wrath falls 
And I don't, I'm not saying that God is like a wrathful God, which obviously he does have wrath if you read the word at its literal interpretation. But the bottom line is there is a consequence for action. And so I do believe God allows the wrath to come in response to our willful sin and abomination. So I'm not saying that in a politically correct or maybe not even in a biblically correct, but hopefully you get the interpretation that there is a consequence. And uh, so I'm happy to see a lot of people jump on the bandwagon of life again, not just because it's an election, but because they have a president who's emboldened enough to take a stand for life. President Trump, many of you may not even know, is the first sitting president maybe in 60 years or maybe ever that has come to a national pro-life event in D.C. and spoken. That's very sad. You know, all of these... um, a lot of people, a lot of conservatives talk about I'm a Reagan Republican or I really liked, you know, whoever. I'm just using it, him as an example. But they don't find themselves to be uh, Trump supporters. And my thing is, like, do you support the Constitution or do you not? That's, that's my number one thing. Because I don't care how you felt about Trump or Obama. If you support our Constitution, it says you support our president. And then secondly... If you're a Bible believer, the Bible says pray for those in authority. So you should be praying no matter who you voted for or how the outcome of the election was. So you got all these people who are saying they just don't like Trump. They're Republicans, but they just don't like Trump. They're conservatives. They just don't like Trump. Fine, you're entitled to your opinion. But the bottom line is if you can't see that this man is standing up for life in a way that no other president in America has, no other president, not... No other president, not George Washington, not, I mean, maybe Abraham Lincoln is the closest. And I, I, will, I will put Abraham Lincoln in the same, uh, you know what, I, I totally bombed on this. Uh, and, and that's why I love that this is unscripted and unedited. But uh, the Lord actually revealed to me from Lincoln to Trump. I'm a firm believer in government doing the job of government and nothing more. I'm a firm believer in the fact that the church has a larger responsibility than government should ever have. And yeah, that part is backwards in the earth. But that's why uh, it's up to those who know and believe to do better with regard to that. But Abraham Lincoln did something as the first Republican president. The party was started during his lifetime. Abraham Lincoln did something in his um, Emancipation Proclamation that, that no one had ever done in this country. And President Trump is echoing those sentiments by what he is doing for the unborn. And he is echoing those sentiments by what he is doing for African Americans through education. This week is HBCU week. And uh, I recently got a um, email from an organization and uh, they were just talking about, you know, the Zoom calls and the webinars and the celebrations and everything we're going to do to bolster HBCUs. But they failed to mention the person who funded HBCUs for eternity, and that was President Trump. And I find it very interesting that 
the target audience for HBCUs are black people. And black people are being kept from the information that would affect their voting habits in November. Because if every black person understood that Donald J. Trump, by himself, signed orders to fund HBCUs from here on out without request for eternity, that that man has done as much for black people in that single act as Abraham Lincoln did in his Emancipation Proclamation. Because freedom is not free without the ability to seek after liberty, and that comes from education. These historically black colleges, I want to say there's like 12 to 16 of them. So there's only a handful, really, in the nation. But these historically black colleges, most of them were paid for by Republicans. Uh, And here in Georgia, Spelman College, Spelman being the maiden name of Rockefeller's wife. You know, you look at some of these other people who paid for um, the founding of these institutions. These are people who followed our Constitution. These are people who used capitalism to wrong a societal, I mean, to right a societal wrong, to fix an ill of our society. And this Republican, quote unquote, president, Donald Trump, has funded those institutions in a way that no other president, not Barack Obama, not Reagan, not Clinton, not Bush, either one, nobody has done. That's just one thing, one recent thing. When you look at the First and Second Step Act, you are looking at undoing some of the prior systemic racism that was prevalent during the 1960s. You know, the Jim Crow era was the era of systemic racism in America. We don't have systemic racism anymore. Now, you may have pockets of it in Joe Schmo Town. But as far as a nation is concerned, we don't have those policies. As far as we don't, you know, Jim Crow was mostly regional. We don't even have that. We don't have a, a, a state. I can't think of a state. Let's put it that way. I can't think of a state that has systemic racism throughout that state. You know, are there some racist governors? Absolutely. Are there racist people at every level of government? Absolutely. Just like there are fat people, there are gay people, there are straight people, there are dumb people, there are smart people, there are skinny people. There's all kind of people everywhere. But the whole idea of systemic racism does not exist in this nation. Now, I can't say that for every nation. In fact, I do have my uh, reservations about some countries that I've been to, and I felt like, wow, there's systemic racism here. But it could simply be my ignorance to the customs of that company, country and my Western interpretation of it, you know, because I'm looking at it from my set of experiences. But I can say in this country, there is no law. There is no system of racism in this country. Yes, there is racism, but that's completely different from a system of racism. And when you're the victim of racism, it's hard to tell the difference between the two. Because the outcome, as far as your experience, is the same. Whether there's a system of racism or just an example of racism, racism, the person who's on the receiving end of that 
feels the same, no matter which is the motive. But I say that to clarify the narrative that is being pushed by many people. I'm going to a Black Voices for Trump meeting today. I'm going to be in the... I'm going to be in the inner sanctum, if you will, for a civilian. And uh, I'm definitely expecting God to do big things in this opportunity that's been given me. But a lot of people have questions about this whole concept of black voices for Trump. I, um, I've had my thoughts, you know, that have ranged from everything up to supportive to questioning. But I realize in this moment and, and have realized for some time, there's an importance and there's a necessity to stand up for what is solution-oriented, regardless of the label, regardless of the names you may be called, regardless of the inconveniences. <sighs> 